Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. You guys doing good this morning? Are you looking good? My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today. So this week I came across a story of a lady who was sitting on the patio of a restaurant and something blew into her eye and so she freaked out and started yelling for someone to get her eye drops out of her purse and hand them to her and after a couple seconds somebody did and she dropped it in. But instead of getting the sweet relief of an eye drop, she felt searing, stinging pain and then realized that she had been handed a bottle of super glue instead of eye drops and her eyelids were glued together. So she immediately walked into the bar and into the chair and into the table and everything else. That's a solid dad joke right there. She couldn't see. You get it? Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, apparently this lady was fine. She went to the doctor and they got it unstuck. And after a couple of weeks, the glue was out of her eye. But I read it and I thought, what a miserable experience. Like I've had it my own bad times with super glue where you squeeze too much and get your fingers stuck together or stuck to plastic. And it just stinks to be stuck to something you don't want to be stuck to. And I think that happens not just with super glue, but with life. Sometimes we feel like we cannot get free from our sin and our shame, our situation, and our scars. There's stuff that we feel like we're so attached to in our past, we worry that we'll never escape it. And there's this sense, I think, at least if you're anything like me, that sometimes we're glued so powerfully to our worst moments that our future is going to be defined by the things in our past we just can't get unstuck from. And there's a sense, too, that some of those things actually cut us off from God. Like we can make decisions or choices that stick us to something that makes it impossible for us to actually be deeply meaningfully connected to the love of Jesus. And if you've ever thought that way, you're not alone. We're not the first people in the history of the world to struggle with this idea that if we're not getting it right or we haven't gotten it right, we might be excluded from the family and the love of God. I think our natural solution is to try a whole lot harder to be worthy of God's love. Just put in a little bit more effort to earn it, but the problem is we can't. We cannot be good enough, and something deep inside of us knows it, but the beauty of the gospel is that we don't have to. This morning, we're finishing up this series we've been in called Fresh Wind. We've been walking through Romans chapter 8, and in this chapter, Paul reminds us again and again and again that the gospel message is not you trying really hard to earn your salvation or to earn God's love and and rowing furiously to get toward the life you want. It's you raising sails and allowing the Holy Spirit to propel you forward like a fresh wind toward the life God created you for. And this morning as we we finish up Romans 8, what we're going to see is that Paul boils this whole thing down into one simple, powerful, incredible, transformational idea. But there's a catch. It's a really difficult idea to actually believe. Everything in our world conspires to convince us that it's not 
true, but it is true. So if you have a Bible or, or a Bible handy, you can crack it open to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be in verse 31 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. You can follow along with the words on the screen or in the Revision app. And if you need a Bible or your kids do, we have a whole bunch of them in a whole bunch of different colors back at the Next Steps table. They are our gift to you. Please take one before you go. All right, so this section that Paul kicks off, this final thrust of his argument in Romans chapter 8, starting verse 31, begins with a question. It actually begins with a succession of seven questions that Paul asks, and every last one of them is rhetorical. He's just assuming that at this point, after everything we've read, after everything he's said, we know the answer to these questions. And the first one is this, what then shall we say in response to these things? You're supposed to know the answer to that. Anybody? We need maybe a little context, like what things? What are these things that Paul's talking about? Well, they're all the truths that he's been hammering home up to this point. That there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We've been adopted into God's family, so there's no guilty verdict hanging over our heads anymore because of what Jesus did for us. And if you've given your life to Jesus, then the Holy Spirit of God is inside you giving you life. In all the places of your story where there were dead, dry bones, God is actually breathing life and a future because he loves you and he likes you. He invented you, which means you are the beloved and beliked sons and daughters of God. And so even in the middle of heartbreak, you can have hope because God is at work to set all things right and make all things new. And so in your life, if it's not good, then God's not done. Those things. Paul's like, what do we say in response to that? What's the only logical conclusion we can come to if all that stuff is true? And here it is. This is that big transformational life principle that's hard to actually believe sometimes. God is for us. God is not against us. He's for us. And not just on some general level for us. God is for you. Do you know that? Like, Do you actually know it deep down inside that the God who dreamed up the universe and spoke it into being is in your corner? That he's willing you to succeed, not waiting for you to fail. That he's not drawing some arbitrary line in the sand and hoping you'll cross it so that he can reject you. But he's waiting for you to allow him to do in your life what you cannot do for yourself because he loves you and he's for you. It's true. But that's kind of a slippery truth. It's one of those ones that's difficult not just to grasp but to hold on to in life even after we've grasped it. And I think for some of us it's... Slippery because we grew up in churches where God was painted more as an angry judge than he was as a loving father. For others of us, it's slippery because we grew up outside the church, but we met people that were in it and they rejected us and judged us and hated us. And it was real hard to feel like God could be for us if his people were against us. Whatever your story is, I think sometimes we convince ourselves that God could not possibly be for us. Our lives aren't the way we want them to be, so how in the world could God be for us? And it's this slippery truth. And even after we've grasped it, in the middle of all the ups and downs of life, sometimes it slips out of our grasp. But Paul is desperate for us to understand that God is for us. That's the answer to his question, what shall we say in response to all these things? And I know that's the answer, because he actually kicks off his second question with that answer. He just assumed we'd get it right. He's like, what do we say? God is for us. So if God is for us, who could be against us? Who? 
It's important to understand here, Paul's not saying that no one's ever going to be against us. He's not saying in this life, if you've accepted Jesus, you're never going to have any difficulty or anyone who doesn't like you or any enemies at all. We know that's not true experientially. In life, we have people that just don't like us. And they don't like us better because Jesus loves us. In fact, some people oppose us because of what we believe. We partner with the Timothy Initiative to plant churches in some of the least reached places on the planet. A couple months ago, we took up an offering to launch 103 new churches. And I promise you, those 103 church planters who are going out now to start new churches, most of them will be doing that in places where they could be beaten, arrested, or killed for sharing Jesus. And we know statistically, many of them will. 103 out of 103 of them will not die of old age. We know that, and they know that. So being a part of God's family doesn't exempt us from having people that are against us. And the Bible tells us, too, we have a spiritual enemy who's against us, who's hell-bent on the destruction of our souls. And so the question is, what in the world could Paul possibly mean then when he says, if God is for us, who could be against us? What he means is that if you're on God's team, you're on the right team because your team's going to win. The result really isn't in question. It's not, it's not a doubt about who's going to win. It's kind of like if you watched the Super Bowl last week for the football and not just the commercials or the halftime show, you may have seen Bengals fans with shirts on them that said, who day? And it's this chant in Cincinnati, who they think going to beat them Bengals? Nobody. Who they think going to beat them Bengals? Nobody. Last Sunday, the answer was the Rams. So <laughs> that's awkward and the analogy breaks down, but that's the big idea of that chant. And that's what Paul's trying to drive out. Like, people might be against you, but who they? Nobody. They can't win. It's kind of like this commercial. Maybe some of you have seen it where these kids are on a playground picking basketball teams, and then one little girl sees Charles Barkley on the sideline, and she says, I'll take him. And he walks out on the court, and the kids on the other team kind of look at him and look around and just go home. That's what Paul's trying to tell us. Like, we may have enemies, but they might as well go home. Here's what he's trying to help us get. We have no enemy with any hope of victory. We have no enemy with any hope of victory. And so he tells us that, and then he asks question three. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, like along with giving us Jesus, graciously give us all things? Paul's going, if the Father was willing to send his Son, if Jesus was willing to step out of glory, out of eternity, into the human story, and die for you and me, what is it inside of us that's convinced that at some point God's going to cut us off? If God was willing to go that far for you and me, if his love compelled him to give his life, why are we worried that maybe once we cross some imaginary line in the sand, God's going to be like, that's it, no more. I've been the fresh wind propelling Mike's life forward up to this point, but I am sick of it. He's the worst. He's going to have to do it on his own now. I've forgiven him 1,417,211 times, but 1,417,212 is too much. I'm out. That guy is the worst. Like, but something inside of us thinks that. Something inside me thinks like that. And I'm betting I'm not alone there. And Paul's like, oh, Why? Like, in view of what God's done for us, why is that the narrative? Why is that the tape that's playing on our head? It's kind of like if somebody wrote you a check for a billion dollars, and then you had to come to them the next week and be like, hey, can I get 20 bucks for gas? That person's not going to be like, I don't have $20 for you. Like, they're all in. 
they're a little bit beyond the point of denying you 20 bucks. And Paul's trying to say, God is not half in on you. There's not a point at which he can, he, he's going to say, like, I know you need that, but go get it on your own. I, I'm like, I'm done. He's all in for all time. And so we don't have to live with any sort of fear. That at any moment, no matter what happens to us or what we do, we're going to get cut off. God's not going to say, figure it out on your own. Paul says he's going to graciously give us all things. But there are moments in our lives when we don't feel like we have all things. There are moments in our lives when we look at our stories and we're like, this is not the one that I wanted. And there's some stuff that's missing here that I wanted to have. And I certainly don't think I'm living out this promise. And it's important we understand what Paul is trying to say here because I have heard people twist this verse and twist his words and say, hey, listen, if you don't have the house and the car and the job and the stuff that you want, then you don't have enough faith. Because if it says right here that God's going to give you all things and you're lacking anything, you must not be trusting in him for the blessings. You must not be praying right. And I want you all to know that that's a whole bunch of garbage. That's not what this verse says. That's not what the Bible says anywhere. That is not at all what Paul's talking about, that he's going to give us all the material desires of our heart. Because the reality is as followers of Jesus, sometimes we find ourselves in moments where we don't have all things. I've been there, and, and you have too. I've, I've had times when I didn't know if there was going to be too much month left at the end of the money. I've had people, I prayed desperately for God to heal, not get healed. And every single one of us has our own list there. And the question is, what do we do with a verse like this? We've got to understand that it's not a promise God is going to give us everything we want. And it's not even a promise that God is going to give us everything we think we need with our limited perspective. This is a promise that God will absolutely give us everything we need in order to live into the purpose for which he created us. It's not a promise God makes us of plenty. It's a promise God makes us of presence and purpose. God makes us a promise of presence and purpose. He will be with us and he will always equip us and give us absolutely everything we need in order to be all he dreamed us up and knit us together and put us on this planet to be. We never, ever have to doubt that. That's what Paul wants us to know. And he follows it up with, with question number four. He says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies He's like, look, if this is true, if God's that far in on you, if God loves you that much, who in the world is going to dare to accuse you of not being worthy, to accuse you of being cut off from the love of God? Who can bring that charge? Paul says, nobody. It's God who justifies, and justifies means set right. Like if you click the justify button on Microsoft Word or on Google Docs, if you're one of those people, then like it sets all the text right. And Paul's like, if God says you're set right, who gets to tell you that you're not? There's not like a higher authority above God who gets to decide that you're not set right and counted good. It's like if I didn't pay my taxes and the city of Windsor Heights came to me and they're like, Mike, you didn't pay your taxes. And I told them, oh, I didn't have any money, so I didn't feel like paying them. And they were like, oh, that's a good reason. Don't worry about it. I would still have to worry about it. Because Polk County could be like, it's real cute, Windsor Heights said that, but please pay us our money. And if they forgave the debt, the state of Iowa could come and say, yeah, it doesn't work like that. You owe us money. And even if Iowa was like, Mike, you're just such a fine citizen of the state of Iowa. Don't ever worry about paying your dumb taxes again. The IRS 
who is not known for their grace or their leniency or their kindness could be like, that's neat that you think Iowa can't make you pay taxes, but we are a higher authority, so money please. And in case the IRS is watching this online or somebody who works for them is here today, I want you to know that's a made-up story. It's a hypothetical. I always pay my taxes. And if you don't believe me and you want to investigate, I look straight in the camera. My name is Jeremy Carmody. That's J-E-R. <laughs> but like, Paul's like, listen, there's not a higher authority to appeal to. If God counts you good, nobody gets to count you not good. You know who nobody includes? You. Look, I know some of us think we're so stuck to our sin, that that we're so defined by our past that we're never going to get free. We're like, maybe I believe that God actually forgave me, but I can't forgive myself. I look in the mirror and I see all of my broken moments, and so I don't don't actually think I'm, I'm good. But Paul says, you don't have the authority to make that claim. Listen, like if you're in that boat, you're not alone. A lot of us have been there. But who are you? Who am I? Who are we to tell God, no, you're wrong about that. I'm in charge. I'm not actually good. Paul says, nobody. If God says we're good, then we're good. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you can know this. You are completely set right and nothing can ever take that away. That's what Paul's getting at. And he he reinforces this whole idea with his fifth question. He says, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So other people might try to condemn you. You might even try to condemn yourself. But you guys, Jesus already bore all of our condemnation. That's how we know God's never going to condemn us. We can know that God's never going to forsake us because on the cross, Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that we never would be. Philippians 2 tells us that he emptied himself of glory. Isaiah 53 said there was nothing beautiful about him that we should desire him. Jesus became poor and pitiable just like us. He gave up his glory so that we could receive glory alongside of him. He gave up his life so that we could live. He bore the weight of our condemnation. He unlocked death from the inside so we could be free. And we could begin to live, like not not someday far off in the future, not one day in heaven begin to live, but begin to live right here, right now, today, into the beautiful, incredible, amazing stories full of love and connection that he dreamed us up to live. That's what he wants. And that idea leads Paul to his last two questions. And he starts by asking, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is no one. It can't be done. But Paul's like us. He's a human, and so he knows how our minds work. When he makes this kind of umbrella statement, like, who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? He knows that something inside of us is going to be like, okay, I know the answer is nothing, but what about this? And I was like, oh, man, I got to drive at home. And so he leans in even harder. And he asks, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword As it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I love it that Paul makes this extreme list of stuff. Because he already told us that nothing can cut us off from the love of God. But then he's like, I got to just expound on that point because how dumb people are. And I really appreciate it because I know me. I know what's going to go through my head. I'm like, all right, Paul said nothing, but um, 
he probably didn't think about this thing that's causing crushing anxiety in my life right now that probably I'm the only person in the history of the world who ever worried about and the only person who's worrying about it right now. I bet Paul didn't think about this. So in your face, Paul, I found an exception to the word nothing. And I think Paul's whole list about nakedness and danger and swords and stuff is his way of shouting across the pages of Scripture thousands of years later, I'm not dumb, Mike, you're dumb. I said nothing. God says nothing. Would you just believe him? And I was reading this this week, and I realized, like, do you guys understand how profoundly liberating it is to believe that nothing can cut us off from the love of God? Like, how much that changes our stories to know that there's no line we can cross, to know that God isn't up in heaven just waiting for us to mess it up so that we can be out and he can be done with us, but he's rooting for us to succeed at every minute, and he promises that nothing can ever rip us away from him being for us. I just think it's incredible, life-changing stuff. And what Paul's trying to hammer home here is this idea that there's not anything we could do or not anything that could be done to us. There is no one and no thing that can separate us from Jesus. No one separates us from Jesus, and no thing separates us from Jesus. And I love it, because every objection we could come up with, every time we could say, yeah, well, what about, what about this? It's either a one or it's a thing. It fits in that category. That pretty well encompasses everything. And so if it's a one or a thing, it can't rip us away from the love of God, which is pretty sweet, because it means we are more than conquerors. I think Romans 8, 37 is one of the coolest verses in the entire Bible. We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. This phrase, more than conquerors, is actually just one word in Greek. It's hupernikomen. It's this compound word with two words smashed together. And hooper means extra, extreme. It's where we get the prefix hyper. And nikao means victorious. What Paul's saying here is we're not just victorious, we're hyper-victorious. Like, it's not even close to being a fair fight. We are winning. That's how far the odds are stacked in our favor, in God's favor. Summer before my senior year of college, I got a job at Living History Farms because I got credit for writing my senior thesis in history for working there for a summer, which was a pretty sweet deal for me. I got paid a little, and I saved myself a giant research paper. And I was supposed to be one of the historical reenactors, but I found a way to still get the credit while being a day camp counselor. So I didn't have to wear wool clothes and work nights and weekends. I just hung out with kids from 3 to 5 Monday through Friday, which was a loophole, but I got a knack for taking loopholes when I can find them. And anyways, we, at the end of the day, like most days, we would play capture the flag, counselors versus campers. I gotta tell you guys, I captured so many flags that summer. Like just every day I was capturing flags. And in retrospect, I suspect maybe it was because I was a 21-year-old college kid and they were second graders, which is why I didn't go home and brag to my buddies every night, I'm so good at capture the flag, you guys, you would not even want to play me. Like, that's how good I am. Because it wasn't a fair fight. And that's what Paul's getting at here. We're hooping to come. We're hyper-victorious. All we do is win, 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 no matter what. You guys didn't even know DJ Khaled stole that from Paul, but he did. <laughs> but here's the catch. If we're hyper-conquerors, that means there's stuff out there that has to be conquered. It means there's giants we got to face and there's mountains we got to climb. There are troubles ahead. Belonging to Jesus doesn't get a, 
doesn't get us a free pass out of existence in a dark and shattered world. Jesus actually promises us that. It's like my least favorite thing he ever said. I have a whole list of them. I don't know if it's cool for a pastor to admit they don't like things Jesus said, but we'll do a sermon series on it someday. Things Mike wishes Jesus didn't say. We can make that work. But top of the list is John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble. I don't want it. I don't. I don't like it. Every fiber of my being wishes that God was in the prevention business and not the redemption business, and he would pluck me out of every ounce of pain I ever feel, and I wouldn't have to walk through it. I, just, I wish that. I wished it really powerfully this week. Last Sunday, my grandma went into the hospital, and this week, she just suffered for a week, and she died yesterday afternoon. And she was almost 101, and she knew Jesus, and she was suffering. And so, like, there's a real beauty in her not being in pain anymore. And the whole idea of her dying, I had myself thoroughly convinced that I was okay with that, right up until the morning that I wasn't okay with that. And I sat in the silent darkness of my living room and got angry that death isn't fair, and I don't like it. And I didn't so much pray, but just, like, willed for my grandma the words of the Welsh poet Dylan Thomas. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. I felt rage. Like I just sat there mad, mad at death, mad at brokenness, mad at the stories that I hear every single week sitting across from people for coffee about how messed up the world is and how wounded they've been. And I just felt a rage at the idea that the world is the way that it is. And I hate it. And then I started processing and praying through like whether this was just some immature angry response to, to grief, and I thought about the life of Jesus, and I realized, like, when his best friend Lazarus died, he didn't shrug it off, and he didn't pretend it was all good and all okay. He wept. Jesus raged at death. In fact, Jesus hated death so much that he gave up his life to conquer it and to unlock it from the inside, and, like, it's okay to have a holy discontent with the way things are. Our world is not yet the way that it should be, but we are not beaten because we are not abandoned. We are not beaten because God has not stopped working yet. We are not beaten because his love claimed us and nothing can rip us away from it. We are not beaten because God is for us. That's what Paul's trying to get us to understand in Romans 8. And he closes with this incredible, beautiful reminder of all that. He says, for I am convinced, not I hope, not I think, not I have a sneaking suspicion, but like I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Paul's going, just in case you still don't get it, just in case the last 37 verses were not enough to convince you that God is for you, I want to make sure that you know that you know that you know it. Absolutely nothing, no one and no thing can rip you away from the love of God. And the way he makes his point here is pretty awesome. This is this literary technique. And I realize there are maybe three of us who are words nerds in here and we, we geek out on that stuff. But like, we're going to get really excited and the rest of you should get kind of excited because it's cool, okay? It's this literary device called the marismus. And it was used in ancient literature to explain like a concept that included everything. And what you do is take two opposites and throw them together. 
as a way of encompassing the whole of life and, and humanity. You stick two things that exist on the far extremes of a spectrum in a sentence together to say, I'm talking about everything in that spectrum. And that's not as foreign a concept to us as it might seem while I explain it poorly. We talk like that all the time. We're like, I've been thinking about you night and day. Or I covered the training manual from A to Z. We don't mean I started when I saw an A and I quit when I saw a Z. I mean, I, I, I read the whole thing, right? And so Paul here uses marismus to drive home his point, but it's really weird because it's one of the only times in all of ancient literature where someone uses more than one of them. All he needed was one. Like everything exists between height and depth. Everything is encompassed between death and, and life. That's the whole point of using a marismus is to say it's, it's all of it. But Paul's like, that's not even enough. I want another one and another one and another one. I, I, want, I want life and death and angels and demons and height and depth. Nothing, not anything on this planet. And that last word is almost insulting. You're like, you just stack like six marismuses. Marismai, I don't know the plural of it. But you just stack six of them together and then you got to throw in like nothing. And it's because Paul's like, I know. I know how hard it is to believe and how dumb we are as human beings and how far we get into our own heads. I know. So people got to understand it's nothing, not a chance, not ever, not a possibility, nothing. And I think, you guys, understanding that there is nothing, no part of our story that could stick to us, nothing we could do, nothing that could be done to us, and nowhere we could go that could cut us off from God's love. I think understanding that changes everything. Our perspective, our ability to navigate a messed up world and the inevitable challenges it throws our way shifts dramatically when we understand that God is for us. That because of what Jesus accomplished for us, we're super glued to Jesus. You are not stuck to your sin. You are not stuck to your shame. You are not stuck to your situation. You're not stuck to your scars. You're stuck to your Savior. Believe that. That's what I want. My deep prayer is that we would just know that in our souls today, that God would thunder it deep inside us, and we walk out of here knowing that we know that we know that nothing can cut us off from his love. And I want to challenge you to, as you think through that, to process through three simple questions. And they're not questions you've got to answer right now. We'll put them on social media. But think through these this week as you consider this idea that nothing can rip you away from the love of God. The first one is this. What is working against me believing that God is for me? Like, what is it in my life that makes that truth slippery for me? Why do I want to doubt it? And how can I get over that doubt? And the second one is, what enemy do I need to remember has no hope of victory? What giants am I facing right now? What difficulty in my life is cutting me off from moving forward to the life God says I was made for because I believe it can't be beaten? Who do I need to remember doesn't get to win because the odds are stacked in God's favor? And the third one is this, who in my life desperately needs to know about this love that I've found that's transformed everything for me. Who do I know? Who am I crashing into on a daily basis that needs to hear this so that they too can be transformed? And I think if you ask those questions, if we ask these questions, as we ask them, what we'll find is our souls set free. We'll find ourselves liberated to move beyond that stuff that we felt like was so super glued to us that we were stuck to it and held back by it, like it was the anchor, keeping our stories right where they were and not allowing them to move forward. We'll find ourselves set free from that 
and able to raise sails in a way that allows the Holy Spirit of God to move like a fresh wind that propels us forward to the lives of meaning and hope and love that we were created for and allows us to, to share that with everybody we crash into because we live in a world that's desperate to hear that message. Will you guys pray with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for loving us in a way that's beyond what we could imagine. Thank you for loving us in a way that locks us in and glues us to yourself. Thank you for loving us so much that nothing we could say or nothing we could do, that nothing we could have done to us and nowhere we could go could ever, ever rip us away from that. And I pray, God, that you would thunder that so deeply in our souls that every single one of us would walk out convinced that you love us, knowing that we are your voice and your imagination wrapped in skin and you are for us. I pray that we would know that today in a way that not only transforms the way we live, but transforms the way we love all the hurting people around us who need to know that too. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.